This Westwards mini masterclass is a production of Westwards, the Western Sydney Literature Organisation. For more information on Westwards and what we do, please go to westwards.com.au. Welcome to today's mini masterclass with me, James Roy. Uh, welcome to our guest, Scott Gardner. How are you, Scott? Very well, thanks, James. Thanks for having me on. That's right. So, Scott, you've written how many books is it now? In your, have you got a number for me? Uh, 20. 20. And, yep, started in 2000. So you could probably work out, if you're any good at maths, how many that is per year. It's like, uh, see, carry. Yeah, it's... <laughs> it's it's significant anyway. <laughs> you don't want to give me a number. <laughs> You're not good at maths, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right. Yeah, so anyone listening who would like to, um, to comment and send in a message and tell us how many that is, and they're most welcome. So 20 books, most of those have been young adult, haven't they? That's correct, yeah, and a few for a younger audience too, but mostly young adult, mostly realist fiction, and mostly contemporary. I think we co won we co won a premiers award a few years ago, didn't we? We did, we did. WA, yes. Yours was mine was um, Anonymity Jones, and yours was Ed. as happy as Larry. Oh, happy as Larry, yeah, right. Yeah. What we're going to be talking about today is uh, the idea of how we find time and place to write, and some of the particular challenges that face uh, face writers. And I think until often until writers actually talk about these, people don't quite understand. Uh, there is this perception, I think, of um, writers being in their garret uh, or either that or in a smoking jacket. How, how's your smoking jacket? Have you got one? It's a, it's a little, yeah, it's a little threadbare. Little threadbare. Um, <laughs> yeah, it still smokes all right, so <laughs> that's good. Yeah, okay. Uh, so um, so a bit of background on, on Scott. You weren't doing anything kind of literary right up to the point where you started writing books. You weren't an English teacher and you weren't a bookshop owner and you weren't, what, what, what were you doing? You were doing a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, well, I started my working life as a gardener. My surname's Gardner. That's um, God making a dad joke, I think. Scott Gardner, the gardener. And um, I realised that it wasn't enough cerebral stimulation for me. So I studied counselling and, and massage and psychotherapy and worked in private practice for seven years uh, or so. And then realised that that wasn't quite what I needed either and did a few other jobs, including driving trucks and working in retail, selling didgeridoos. I've heard uh, you play the didgeridoo. You've got a travel one, haven't you, that sort of expands and turns into a... Yeah, kind of... yeah that's right. A, a telescopic job that uh, you can take on most planes, but the Qantas baggage handlers uh, don't like the don't like the shape. They want to see it in action before they put it on the plane. So for anyone who's trying to imagine what Scott's travel did, it looks like it's a, a long pipe. And then when you extend it, it becomes a slightly longer pipe, doesn't it? <laughs> that's, that, that's a really eloquent description there, James. <laughs> I think you've nailed it. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like a telescope. You blow into it. Yeah, that's right. That you blow into rather so then, than look through. So then you you hit the you hit the scene with uh, with your first novel, and then a few novels later, you you'd been doing a lot of work in festivals and uh, school visits and all that sort of thing. And I and you and I hung out at a number of festivals and school visits. And then you went off and did teaching. Why? Um, I got tired of living on the road for months of the year, and I felt like I needed some time to just generate some reasonable relationships. Like the 
the writer's life when they're touring, they end up feeling like a like an educational prostitute. Like you'll just go from school to school and you never really sit still. Um, you might meet a few kids and remember their names, but they won't have a lasting impression on you uh, unless you remain in contact with them. And then I realised that the lo- one of the local schools was offering people opportunities to retrain as a teacher if they had some career prior to, it's like a career change sort of opportunity. And uh, I spoke to the principal at the local school and he gave me credit for the um, gardening that I did originally, the landscaping apprenticeship. He, they um, acknowledged that as part of the degree where I'd be eventually teaching in a trade or something like that. Uh, and then I did a, a kind of sweet and condensed version of the uh, Bachelor of Education and worked as a teacher for a couple of years. Did he give um, you any credit I, for the um, for the 20 books you'd written? Well, that ended up being the bane of my existence because I really quite liked working in the trade section of the school but couldn't connect with the English curriculum. So he gave me English classes to teach and uh, I'm sad to say that I wasn't the best English teacher. All I wanted to do was have fun with words and, and unfortunately that's not what the English curriculum's about. I wanted to be able to teach the kids to express themselves clearly and and concisely uh, and expand their vocabulary, but there just wasn't time and space for that amongst all of the box ticking that you have to do. Yeah, so, so instead of instead of um, learning how to speak clearly or learning to express yourself, you spend time trying to work out why Mr Darcy couldn't, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, you can do this. You can do this. Here's a here's a, a hurdle you have to jump, yeah. Oy, eh, and you fall on your face. And uh, I was conscious of the fact that uh, a lot of the young people that I was working with, it was a pretty socioeconomically depressed area that I was working in, and the teachers and the students did work hard to just make ends meet, sort of thing. And a lot of the kids that I was working with were completely disconnected from the English curriculum, and. Uh, that had been a battle that had been going on for quite some time. And I think bringing the fun and games to it that I did definitely helped their level of engagement, but didn't tick enough boxes for it to be sustainable for me or the school. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the difficult thing, isn't it? If you're trying to engage, disengage students, they, they don't really care about what Shakespeare had to say, do they? They're much more interested in how they use English in their own lives. Precisely, yeah. And uh, I think that's an age-old battle and that there have been people who've done it quite successfully, like made Shakespeare very entertaining. And there's a fine line to draw between being a performing monkey and being uh, a good educator. And I'm afraid I erred on the performing monkey side (laughs) more than I should have. Uh, Doesn't sound like you at all, Scott. (laughs) (laughs) It's most certainly my nature. Well, I I remember remember being in a backyard with uh, you and Philip Gwynn at one point up here in the mountains. (laughs) You you produced what could only really be described as an aerosol-powered gun. Really? <laughs> oh, the spud cannon, yes. The spud cannon, which you filled up with, with half a can of Aerogard, lit the end of it and blew a tennis ball um, several blocks over the... <laughs> yes. Uh, I think that is probably a, a pretty clear illustrator of my level of maturity and uh, we should just leave it at that and move okay, on. We'll leave it at that. So in the end, teaching wasn't for you, but what did you take out of that teaching experience that you could bring back to your real career, if you like, uh, of being a writer? 
Well, the bread and butter were the relationships that I had with the other teachers and most certainly with the students. The chance to scratch a little deeper and to understand the way that the young people that I was working with viewed the world. I did quite a bit of outdoor education work while I was working at the school as well and got to see kids out of their um, natural habitat but in a, a habitat that was much more akin to my world, like going bush with them for extended camps. And I got to see how they dealt with adversity. I got to see how they reacted to one another in situations where they could easily abandon each other. Uh, in a normal social situation, they probably would have just walked away. But in these situations, they found a strength and found a camaraderie that didn't exist while they were at school. And I watched some of those things transfer back into the school environment, which was really nice. So... The end result of that was a collection of short stories that's kind of based on the um, experience of working in outdoor education uh, and that will come out with Alan and Anwen next year. It's called uh, Off the Map and essentially it's set in a, in a town called Nerima and uh, there's characters that, that their lives overlap but it's essentially... Uh, 15 independent stories set in a single area, mostly about uh, about camping and about people struggling with uh, with challenges. And regional country towns have their own fair share of challenges, don't they? This is true. <laughs> this is very true. Um, so we, we're talking about time and place, and I guess this dovetails pretty neatly into that. When I asked you the earlier question, I, I said your real career of being a writer. Do you find that people struggle to announce themselves as being a writer? Do you think that people feel like they have to make apologies for identifying as a writer? Did you ever have to do that? I think until I had a backlist, I felt vulnerable introducing myself as a writer because the, the next question is, have you written anything that I would have known about or that I'd have heard about? And the chances are very slim. Uh, so uh, I'd kind of hedge my bets a little bit and say that uh, I write novels uh, for a very specific audience and, and then talk about how hard it is to write for young adults who are particularly, uh, if you look at the statistics, the world's most reluctant readers. Who'd have thought? <laughs> Who'd have thought? So I, I, I like that answer, actually, that you had to, you felt like you needed to have a backlist behind you. But um, does that tie into then the idea of, um, we were talking just before we started the recording, talking about confidence and how lacking confidence is anathema to a, a writer. Or most, I, can't, we, I guess we can't generalise with every writer, but for most writers that I know, confidence is, is everything. And if, if you don't feel like you're getting support from the people who you're surrounded by, how do you find that confidence? Oh, precisely. Um, I think the idea of being a writer is misconstrued, as you mentioned earlier, in, in general populations. And we, we are vulnerable and we are fragile and we've just got to do our best to try and shore ourselves up before our babies get out into the world, if you like. So you, you pour your heart out onto the page and you do it with the intent. For me, it's, it's quite a clear sense of audience that I have when I'm, when I'm writing. Um, and you do it to the best of your capacity and you think this book's going to find a home and this book is going to do its thing and uh, it eventually makes it onto the shelves and 
it maybe doesn't do its thing as you'd anticipated. I think my favourite part of writing a book is starting a new adventure where everything is possible. Uh, some of my books have, have won awards and some of my books have been set as study texts and that sort of thing. So lots and lots of people have read them, but it doesn't make me feel any more confident next time I sit down to write. Well, one of your books has won half an award because I won the other half. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, and we should share them together. In fact, we should have cut them in half like friendship necklaces. With well, around our neck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, as you were talking about that idea of... Um, pouring your heart onto the page. And I, I guess, I mean, I'm a, I love my sport and I, I think about say cricket and if you're a batsman in cricket and you play a bad shot and get out, it's disappointing, but there's going to be another game tomorrow. Or there's going to, if you're playing a test, there's going to be another test in a few days time. But when you're writing a book, I mean, this can be like a six month, two year project. How, how do you find yourself getting back to that keyboard when you're hinging so much on this thing that eats up so much of your time. I think you have touched on what is the crux of being a writer. It's the, the German turn of phrase, Sitzfleisch, you know, chair glue, stuff that gets you back to the keyboard. And that's part of, it's the least romantic, but the most practical part of being a writer. You just have to turn up. I feel like, you don't need to be religious about it. In fact, I think the being fanatical about it can be destructive, but the idea of being so committed to an idea that you will make the time, steal the time, and this is what it comes down to, steal the time from other aspects of your life to get this idea down on the page so other people can experience it. That is where the rubber meets the road where the, where the people who are professionals can make a living for themselves because they do just keep fronting up. Having said that, I know lots of people who keep fronting up and write beautiful things that haven't found a place for themselves in the world yet in the commercial world. Um, doesn't mean they're any less a writer. In fact, I've, uh, I feel humbled by some of the writing that comes across my desk uh, for me to read from unpublished writers. But you do, over time, develop shortcuts and a head of steam in the sense that, well, an example, I'm nearly 30,000 K into a new novel and I haven't touched it since January, but it's still burning there. And I know as soon as this crazy period of my life settles, I'll come back to it with a new vigour. If that had happened in the writing of my first book, I don't know that I would have had the metal to come back to it. I don't know that I would have had the steam to get me across the line. But now I realise that uh, there are things that interrupt the flow and you've got to embrace them and move with them and then bust a gut to do what's required to get the thing on the page. I often um, joke that it was very hard work convincing my wife when I was writing full-time, which was for, for a number of years, um, and we'll talk in a minute about what that actually means being a full-time writer. But, um, I found that it was hard to convince my wife that lying in the hammock for four hours a day was part of my work. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it's not entirely a joke because there is an element of, of that, but how do you, as somebody who left full-time writing for a while to go and do quote marks, a real job you probably had to scrabble around to find the time to do some writing and you probably were still productive in that time as a writer, I imagine. 
when all that pressure is released in terms of time, how do you force yourself to the keyboard then? Do you find that in, in a funny, perverse kind of way, it's harder to get to the keyboard? Uh, I feel more productive when there's pressure on my time, yes. Uh, I do a lot of hammock dreaming like you just described when there are no pressures, but I do have a sense of internal pressure. I do have a motivation to see this story through to the end. I've made a commitment to myself to do that. And generally that's enough to get me across the line. Also getting the, the getting paid thing, isn't there? Well, there's that. Yeah. You've got to have something in order to get paid. And I don't know how you work, but my, um, 20 books have all been written spec. Like I've sold them after I've, I've written them. I don't take a contract uh, for an unwritten book and that's how I started my career. I feel like it's kind of a disservice in some respects. Is that something that you have actively tried to, to do is not accept the contract for a book that you haven't written yet? Is that something you resist or is that just something that hasn't come up as an opportunity at this stage? If someone offered you a contract for a book you haven't written, would you take it? No, I've refused multiple book deals in that very vein. Like sometimes a publisher will say, we'll have this and we'll have your next book. And, and this is the, uh, this is how much we'd like to pay for both of them. Um, and I've refused that. There've also been uh, opportunities for me to write books for series where others are contributing as well. Um, I'd have a crack at doing the writing before I committed to being part of the series. So it is a conscious effort. I like the fact that the ball ends up being in my court when I'm trying to sell something. If I'm trying to sell an idea, it's much less tangible than selling a product. Having said that, trying to sell an idea can sometimes get you in a position where you are talking about something that hasn't been created yet. So it's still sparkly with imagined promise. But once it's on the page, uh, they know what they're buying. That can be an advantage, but also a disadvantage in the sense that they will know, well, this is uh, for a particular market. It's a small market. We'll offer a small uh, reward for that. It's interesting, actually, um, this approach, because there are people in our industry in, uh, in this part of the world who will say yes to anything and then work out how to write it. It's kind of interesting you say that right now because earlier this week it was Tina Fey's 50th birthday and I was looking up some quotes for, for, from her for our other podcast and one of them was, was she was saying that uh, writing is a little bit like doing improv, which she also did, which is based around the idea of yes and. And mm. um, she said she likes to say yes and then work out how she's going to do it. But I guess, is that just a matter of some people like to keep the control and like to feel that in your case, are you wanting to just make sure that what you present is the best it can be rather than something that's just fulfilling a, a contract? Exactly. And there's a sense of those self-imposed deadlines rather than any commercial deadline. Like you won't have pressure from a publisher to finish a novel and if the thing turns out to be ornery, as they sometimes do, and it takes six months instead of three months, or in the case of uh, Zuzak, 10 years instead of a year, um, you only have your self-imposed pressure. Uh, I spoke to Marcus a couple of years ago, just before he'd finished writing Bridge of Clay, and he said that 
it eventually got to a point where he had to tell the publishers who were knocking on his door and saying, okay, we, we've got um, rights for your next book. When's it coming? Uh, we're ready to, to go with it now. I mean, they were doing it in, in uh, very gentle terms, I'm sure. With Marcus, he eventually said, no, I can't do it. I'm just going to have to bring it back to my own timeline and, and do it when it suits, when the, when the thing has its flow and finds its form, then I will give it to you. And the publishers obviously said, well, yeah, that's fine. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for letting us know. But he ended up putting it all in um, on his timeline rather than their timeline. But how do you make that decision? I mean, Marcus is a slightly different thing. I mean, I've, I've heard Marcus say that he didn't want to deliver a, a poor product because the early one had been so successful. And I'm thinking, well, that sounds like a challenge I wouldn't mind facing myself, you know, having a book that's so <laughs> hugely successful that the next one is going to be a success anyway. Yeah, how do, how do you work out what needs to be dealt with now and what can afford to wait. You talked earlier about uh, having a book that you're 30,000 words into that is now sitting in the back of your head and in the bottom drawer at the moment. At what point do you go, now this is just procrastinating? There are times when the distractions do sabotage my uh, sense of flow about a, a project. I think the thing that gets me back to the keyboard is the, the gap in my life, the sense that there's something I should be doing, but I'm not doing it. Oh yeah, that's right. There's that project, but that project, while I'm not actually writing about it, just like you spoke about your hammock time, <laughs> everything I do is hammock time for the work in progress. And I'm sure that happens for you as it happens for everybody. You know, the, the things, you go down the street and you meet someone who has a, a, a tattoo of a kiwi that's in purple and you think, well, that's really appropriate for one of the characters that I'm working on at the moment. And that'll spark a line of thought and some internal dialogue about this character and why that tattoo is important for them. So I feel like I'm always working. It's just the output side of things that isn't happening at the moment that will happen in the fullness of time. It's, a, it's an interesting kind of thing to face, really, because what I hear you saying is that we're kind of operating as writers on a slightly different metric for success than most people. Um, most people are working on different KPIs to what we are. You know, our KPI is I've got a book that comes out every two years or every year or whatever, plus my side projects, and I'm earning enough money to keep food on the table by doing a certain number of schools a year or whatever it might be. Those KPIs only get addressed very rarely, really, don't they? How do you manage that whole idea of trying to encourage yourself and keep your own head straight when people around you are operating on completely different timelines in their, in their work? Because as a teacher, you would have had, you know, you've got terms and you've got weeks and you've got by week eight, this has to happen. Whereas as a writer, those, those timelines are stretched. Mm. And entirely under your control when you are, you know, not working to a contract. I think the key performance index for me is the sense that this thing needs to be written. And if it's still humming after four or five months of not putting a single word on the page and it's still powering on, then it's, it's something that I will continue to work on. This is, this is where the real isolation happens as a writer. It's like you described, 
other people are working on a different metric and our sense of achievement and sense of commitment to the whole project at hand and the career as a writer will be shaken and stirred from time to time and the thing that brings us back or the thing that uh, makes us professionals is the sense that we will rise against whatever adversity presents itself. We will push, if the idea is worth it, we will push until it finds a form that we can share with others and let them make the judgment about whether or not it has value in the world. I don't see a lot of you on social media. Is this something you don't get into much? I don't really enjoy it, no. Um, so tell, me, tell, me, tell me why that is, because I've got my reasons as a writer for um, resisting certain aspects of social media. What are your reasons? It's a bit grey for me. I've, I've done a couple of meetings with professionals who've tried to help me get into the feel of, of social media and I've, I've had brave stints where I felt like, yep, this is, this is it. I've, I've finally found my tack. I don't have a tack in social media. I, don't, um, I know that a lot of your social media posts are helping people straighten their thoughts about things, um, <laughs> particularly uh, uh, what was the latest rant uh, that I actually read from start to finish was about um, vaccinations right. and, and, and anti-vaxxers. And, it got ugly real quick, uh, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it did, um, but it was extremely well-written and a very convincing argument. In, I, case anyone's uh, que- in, in case anyone's in any doubt, I'm not anti-vax, I'm pro, just so you know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, and, and you need to qualify that because that's what you do <laughs> on a daily basis. I, I, I really don't care. Um, I, I don't mind uh, what your opinion is about anything. And I come to social media and I think, oh, I'm glad you're enjoying your coffee, but uh, this feels to me like a child that I don't need. This is, a, this is something that I, I need that I'm encouraged to look after and to foster and to support and to, you know, give a little bit of my love to. And uh, I don't know. Some of us are more narcissistic than others. (laughs) You're you're one of the least narcissistic people I know and some of us aren't. Well, thank you. And and I (laughs) wish that that was the case, but I feel like the, the thing that bores me with it is that sense of chasing our own tails and, oh, Goodness. The reason I raise that is because you, know, you talk about chasing your own tail and that's exactly my point is that I stopped following a lot of friends on Facebook. I still, they're still my friends as such, but, and you know, that's a term that's changed its meaning, hasn't it? Because they're not really, <laughs> a lot of them aren't really friends. They're just people I've met a few times at festivals, but I often don't follow them because my, my view is that this life we've chosen of being creatives is by necessity and by evolution quite glacial in its process Mm. and while i'm happy for people having success my friends and colleagues having success the last thing you need when you turn on your facebook in the morning is seeing 15 different people talking about their new contract in russia or their their books just been picked up for a a netflix miniseries whatever while i'm happy for them I'm reading those things at 11 o'clock in the morning and going, I'm still in my pajamas and these guys are, <laughs> these guys are signing with Netflix. I mean, what, what do you think about that whole idea of keeping the success of others at arm's length? And again, I just want to be clear. It's not because I begrudge them success, but it, some days your own writing doesn't feel like it's going to be a success. I guess it, it depends a little bit on how you're feeling about the project in hand. Like if you are, feeling vulnerable about it 
then hearing about other people's success is just a knife wound. If you are feeling strong about it, then hearing about other people's success can buoy you along. Uh, and I think the Facebook particularly is broad enough and diverse enough that you can get equal amounts of support and um, stuff that's going to make you feel bad to a point where they cancel each other out. So why bother in the first place? Surely it would be better spending those hours that you would addicted and trolling through post after post working on your project. Maybe that would be a more productive thing. So I'm just conscious of it being a, a time sink. And I think I would rather sink my time into people who ha are in front of me rather than the, the friends that I love and respect all over the country. Um, their their daily ponderings so um a couple more quick questions before we wrap up but uh we're in lockdown and quarantine etc at the moment but notwithstanding that are you back to doing lots of work on the road no no i feel like the uh, the break that we've had that is covid19 has allowed me to reassess that and i feel like I, i'd like a hands-on job again but probably not in education I think I'd like to pick up some work. Um, there's a big commercial nursery down the road here and I'd like to work a few days a week doing something like that where I can have inconsequential conversations with people, meet friends, uh, make friends sort of thing, uh, and do repetitive and useful things with my hands while I'm thinking. I like that as a job. you ever have a moment on the road where you just went, you know, an out-of-body kind of moment? where you, you listen to yourself talk and just going, what am I doing? Yes. Uh, every year in the middle of book month, uh, <laughs> right. where, where there are just thousands and thousands of people and one school after another, where your feet barely touch the ground, where you are reinventing, hopefully uh, an idea that's been with you for a long time to a new, new audience. Uh, at the end of the day thinking what have I done where am I which which way is up you know that sense of getting completely immersed in the the touring and a little bit disjointed from yourself yeah I'm gonna every give you year a, that I'm gonna give you a little secret about book week that I that I have every book mm. week I'll, I'll have a story that I start to tell at the beginning of book week and I set myself a challenge to make it as different and as good as I can by the end of the week because I'm going to be telling it <laughs> three or four times a day for the whole week and by the end it bears very little resemblance to the real original story but man it's a great story and i'm loving it it's, it's like to go, oh, one your, your life is so incredible yeah, no, this is all <laughs> it's the one person chinese whisper i that's love it the that's the one people often ask me oh do you have an office and my answer really is no i've got a, a music studio with a computer in it that i work at but i tend to work wherever What's your approach to this uh, question of where you work and how you find the right space to do that? Is it just a simple matter of a, something with a pot of tea and a table? Is that all you need? That's changed a lot over time. In the beginning, for my first three novels, I reckon, I treated it like a desk job and sat in an effective cubicle. I had to rotate my desk so I couldn't look out the window so that I could concentrate on the, on the job in front of me. And then I realized that my body was dying from doing that. 
like the spending five, six hours a day writing, um, I don't know, sometimes upwards of 10,000 words was not a healthy way for me to spend my days. Uh, even though it ends up being, it ended up being quite productive and it, and it set the tone for my, my sense of self as a writer, it didn't help me feel like I was doing anything productive in the world. So after about the third book, I started rearranging my office and then discovered, thanks to Andy Griffiths, the work of Natalie Goldberg. And Natalie Goldberg, American author, and I recommend her work, particularly Wild Mind, but um, Writing Down the Bones as the sorts of books that writers should read. Uh, They're how-to books for people who've had a crack at it, like really powerful ideas. And one of Natalie Goldberg's things is to write and walk. And I did a bit of writing and walking and I realized that I couldn't do them simultaneously, but I could walk for a while and then write for a while. So for the last 17 books, maybe I've done a lot of writing and walking and usually, well, it's almost always outdoors, but I uh, sometimes get wet. I sometimes get eaten by mosquitoes. I sometimes have, strong relationships with lyrebirds and that sort of thing that aren't typical desk job experiences. And I realised that writing isn't a desk job. It doesn't have to be inside. In fact, I feel like I'm more fluid when I'm out and amongst it. And there are times when being out and amongst it influences what I'm writing. Like I wrote a book called Sparrow, which was about a, a guy who was homeless, a young bloke living in Darwin who was incarcerated for a crime and as part of the, the process of escaping, well, removing himself from incarceration, he's taken on a boot camp and the boot camp fails and falls over just off the coast of the Kimberley in Western Australia. My wife and I were in the Kimberley in Western Australia when I was writing it, so I felt like the landscape was fresh. I felt like everything that I was writing to, down to the way the air smelt was based on experience. And I think... You can imagine these things, but I feel like being in an environment can be really empowering like that. And at one stage we were camping, obviously, and I'd propped to write on a log and a mulga, like a king brown snake, came in underneath my leg I, and then came out the other side and just continued on its way. I was just another immovable object in, in that situation. And that snake went straight onto the page. Like it was something that I could include as a character in the same way that I was talking about a guy with a ta- uh, a purple um, Kiwi tattoo would influence the way I feel about a character. When you're in a landscape and you're writing about that landscape, it's a really powerful thing to, to allow it onto the page. One of the great privileges of doing what we do, and I think young adult and kids writers probably do this more than, more than most writers. You know, we, we get the opportunity to travel to some pretty interesting places and you know you and I have both worked with Leslie and her staff over at the Literature Centre in Fremantle and I imagine mm. when you say you're in the Kimberley you were on one of those Port Hedland to um to Newman gigs. we just finished one we right. drove over for it and then drove back by Darwin right. so right. it was uh, yeah, yeah so it was our excuse driving through that Namajira country over to Newman you know that's something that most people don't get to do and it's it's, it's a real privilege but you do you do bring that into your work don't you Absolutely. Yes. And you get to meet young people on the ground who are having experiences that aren't all um, McDonald's and video games. And, you know, they're they're rouseabouts and they're working on the farm. 
for the months of the year when they're not at school and uh, they have autonomy and, and a sense of self that is uncommon mm. in urban environments. So uh, I, you'll find that a lot of my characters reflect that too. Lots of them live out of town and, and have responsibilities that um, lots of young people aren't. They're not helicopter parented, um, a lot of my characters, uh, because they're often the kids who are most interesting to me. So when, when you go on your walking writing sessions, or you, you just take a regular pen and paper? Is that what you're using? Yes. Yeah, um, I'm fond of how simple that is. I have two pens and two pads and that'll last me, you know, a couple of weeks, easy. And if I perchance left one of them on a train, it would still be there when I went back. If it was a laptop, it would definitely be gone because, you know, you can't surf porn on a pad. Uh, and that works for me as well because there are so many distractions. If you have, oh, I better quickly just Google that and check um, moments throughout your day, you can get lost down that rabbit hole 15 times a day and there goes your sense of productivity. So I would rather lose my productivity to uh, lyrebirds and, and snakes in the wilderness than to um, the <laughs> rabbit hole that is the internet. One of my favourite books uh, about writing is Walking on Alligators by Susan Shaughnessy. And she, um, yeah, it's a great book. And she, Basically, she walking takes it, on alligators. Walking on alligators, yeah, yeah. And she she basically takes two hundred quotes by writers, and then she on each page she takes one quote, she unpacks that quote, talks about it, and then she has a mantra for the writer at the end of the page. And you read one a day, and it basically drives you back to your desk or wherever you do your writing. But she nice. says, but she says at the beginning in the introduction, she says, nothing makes you feel like cleaning out your fireplace more than having a book to finish. <laughs> and you know, it's, it's right up there with you know writers have the best gardens I, I, that's not true yeah, my yeah, place yeah. but yeah um, <laughs> even 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 stuff that you wouldn't normally be interested in surfing on the net you might go and look for if it means that you're not going to have to push through yeah, that push really words out spot <laughs> yeah precisely my own method is to walk yeah, if if I feel stuck about something, then just go and do something else for a while. Just or just and, move. Just go and go and write yeah. somewhere else. And I, I think, I think again, that comes back to this kind of vague embarrassment, this cringiness that we have about identifying as writers because we don't want to be seen as tossers, you know. So you go, oh, I'm going to go up to a cafe and work with my, with my laptop. I mean, that happens a lot more than mm. it used to. If you'd done that 15 years ago, people would call you a tosser. But just go and sit somewhere different and do it, and and just. Um, yeah. Except they've all got it Wi-Fi, which means you've you haven't really avoided your uh, no, that's right. And have you? I, I think that that's part of the motivation for the cafe writers, and uh, I'm not a cafe writer. Or well, I have written in cafes, of course, but uh, it's not a habit that I that I try and uh, foster for that where's, particular reason. Where's the weirdest place you've ever written? Um, it was pissing down rain one day, and I ended up in a stormwater drain which is a stupid thing to do, but the, the, the flow of water underneath my leg was not moving too fast uh, and I was protected from the rain. Unfortunately, so, it was full of snakes, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, no snakes that I saw, unfortunately. <laughs> they would have been welcome. I finished a novel on the back of a sick bag on an aeroplane because i was <laughs> I'd been working on this series for years and I couldn't quite get the ending and then it came to me as we're on final approach into Avalon Airport. And Beautiful. I took out my computer and the, and the, and the host, he went, I'm sorry, sir, you, you can't 
have that computer about to land. I said, but I'm a writer. And she said, I don't care, put it away. And so I, <laughs> I grabbed the sick bag out of the back of the thing and I wrote on that and I've still got it somewhere. It's just the, the last chapter of that book is written on a sick bag, which is excellent. And it was, it was unused by the way. I, I wouldn't recommend you use a used one that, that never ends well. <laughs> oh, very Scott cool. Gardner, thank you so much for talking to us today. I've really enjoyed chatting with you. It's always good to catch up with you. Um, My pleasure. And uh, watch out for the snakes on your next walk. You're in Gippsland. Are there a lot of snakes down that way? Yes, there are. Yeah, yeah, mostly benevolent um, copperheads that, you know, excuse me, sir, you're standing on my tail, is how they respond when you stand on them rather than and make you bleed. Uh, <laughs> the brown snake that just turns into a, a danger noodle of fury. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lovely descriptive, yes. And chases you across the yard. <laughs> <laughs> Don't, it's very hard, isn't it, when they say <laughs> across the continent. It's very hard, isn't it, when they say if if you confront a brown snake, just stand perfectly still and you go, "Yeah, all right, I'll see how I go." <laughs> I was doing so well until that poo started leaking down my leg. <laughs> all right, we might have to leave it there. <laughs> oh, you really? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, mate. Appreciate Thanks very it. Much, mate. Talk next time. Good on you. See you. Now.